Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy, Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show.
What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Tuesday. It is the 9th of January. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all enjoying a nice, bright, sunny day, wherever it is you may be. Uh, the sun is out here. It is cold, but the sun is out, and that's all you can really ask for. Right. There is only one topic today, and there's only one topic that deserves our attention at this point, and that is Franz Beckenbauer, who passed away over the weekend. Uh, it was announced yesterday that he had passed away on Sunday at the age of 78, surrounded by his wife and family at their home in Salzburg. Der Kaiser is one of the greatest players that this game has ever seen. And it was quite a shock to get that news. 78 is, it's a decent innings, but it's still quite young in today's world 78 is quite young and you don't think of Franz Beckenbauer as really being all that old so to hear the news that he passed away was obviously a shock and therefore the only fitting thing to do today is to talk solely about Franz Beckenbauer and what he meant to the game so he was born in Munich in 1945 joins the Bayern Munich Academy in 1959 at the age of 14 and that is where he becomes an icon but what many people forget is that the Bayern Munich he joined is not the Bayern Munich that we know today the Bayern Munich that he joined was the second team in in, in Munich at the time they weren't even the preeminent team in their own city at the time let alone the dominant force in German football, one of the dominant forces in Europe. 1860 were the number one club in Munich at that point. And Beckenberg grew up an 1860 fan and made it quite obvious that he was. His hero was Fritz Walter, legendary player, part of the 1954 German World Cup side. And he was a Kaiserslautern legend. And when Beckenbauer was young, he dreamed of being Fritz Walter, but for 1860 Munich, being that legendary forward player who would carry a club on his back the way Walter had done at Kaiserslautern. And when he joined Bayern, he was a striker and he played up front. And he believed that that's the position he was going to play in. And then slowly but surely, he got moved backwards. First, he moved to the left wing. Then he moved into midfield. And eventually, he moved into defence. And it wasn't just that he moved back and accepted that this is what was happening. He moved back and revolutionised the game as it was happening. Franz Beckenbauer became an attacking defender. And he's the first centre-back to really be that ball-playing, step-out, drive into midfield, make-things-happen type of player. He's credited with inventing the sweeper role, which he didn't, but he did revolutionise it. Prior to Franz Beckenbauer, the sweeper position was primarily, well, it was solely a defensive position. You were there to just sweep behind your defensive line to be that last man of defence 
and nothing was to get past you. The deadbolt. But Beckenbauer, while very, very effective from the defensive side, saw an opportunity on the ball to be much more, to be able to carry the ball out from defence, to be able to launch attacks. And when you look at the great sweepers through history, especially those that came after him, they modelled their game on him. Matthias Zammer, Lothar Matthias. Lothar Matthias, probably the second greatest German player ever after Beckenbauer, idolises Beckenbauer as a player, as a coach, as a friend, and has talked about when he got moved into that sweeper position, he would ring Beckenbauer endlessly and ask him, Questions. What do I do in this situation? What do I do here? <clears throat> now, he couldn't replicate what Beckenbauer was capable of. He didn't have the speed to carry the ball forward. He didn't have the height, the grace that Beckenbauer had. Now, Beckenbauer is only 5'11", but Lothar is 5'9". Beckenbauer was an exceptional athlete. Pacey, sharp reflexes great spring, you watch him play and you see him out jump guys that are three and four inches taller than him and do it with ease. Like a lot of sweepers who got moved backwards after Beckenbauer would have flaws to the defensive side of the game, but he didn't. He was the complete player in that role. He could play in a two as a centre-back when needed, but if you wanted to get the very best out of him, you'd play him in that sweeper role with two stoppers in front. So not only were you getting the greatness of his defensive game, you were going to get what he could offer on the ball. And what he could offer on the ball as a passer, as a controller of tempo. You're talking about Sergio Busquets as a passer. Frankie de Jong as a ball carrier. And Franco Baresi as a defender, all in one. Like we genuinely are talking about a one of one uber talent who revolutionized the game in ways that we still feel today. When we talk about teams and, and players that play out from the back, that might have happened without him but it's unlikely that it would have developed the way it did without him. <clears throat> when, when Ajax started to revolutionise the game under Renus Michaels, Beckenbauer was one of the players that Michaels looked at and thought, how do I replicate what he does in how I want to play? Like when we talk about total football and you think about what total football is and the ability for a player to play in every position, to be able to pr perform every action, to do everything, to ensure that if your centre-back gets caught in midfield and your right-back has to cover in and a midfielder has to go to right-back, that all of those players are comfortable performing those roles. Franz Beckenbauer is the archetype of what you're looking for, a guy who could play literally everywhere and not just do a job, but excel. From a technical point of view, 
you know, we hear so much about how the modern player, the level of technique is so much higher. I, I don't agree with that. I look back and I see these players in the 70s and the 60s playing on pitches that if a modern player saw them, they'd cry. They'd turn an ankle within 30 seconds and be getting carried off in a stretcher. Remember that these players were dealing with substandard playing surfaces, a ball that was twice as heavy, three times as heavy as what we have now, didn't have the same training regimes, didn't have any of the the modern advancements. And yet the level of football was exceptionally high. And in Franz Beckenbauer, you had a guy that in that era, when you've got Pelé, Cruyff, Best, Eusebio, all of these amazing players, these all-time greats, he didn't just tag along with them. He stood atop them all. He has a really strong case for being the best player of all time. He genuinely does. And so often when we have the conversation about who's the best player ever, the thought process is, well, let's look at the attackers. Let's look at Messi. Let's look at Pele. Let's look at Maradona. And Beckenbauer and Maldini and players like that are always overlooked. But Franz Beckenbauer has a legitimate case that he's the greatest player to ever live. Because he could play at a world-class level in four or five positions. Sweeper, centre-back, right-back, defensive midfield, central midfield. And he did all of those things regularly. And he would do them not just in you know a season, he would do them in a game. He would have spells where he'd just play in midfield. If that's what Bayern or Germany needed, he would step into midfield and run the game, settle things down, or raise things up, get them moving forward, be a creative hub for them. His ability to pick the ball up and glide through the lines, draw defenders and slide passes in for people like Gerd Muller is unmatched. You're not seeing... We have some great ball-playing centre-backs in the modern game. Some are great passers, some are great carriers. He was both. You know, Liverpool fans love to watch Joel Matip carry the ball from defence, go on his adventures. Franz Beckenbauer would do that four or five times a game. But it wasn't... You know now when you see a centre-back go careering into the opposition half, no one really knows what to do with them and everybody thinks it's a bit of an oddity. And everybody gets a little bit excited because it's quite unique to see. With him, it was just part of what he did, but he didn't need to just do that. He could ping a pass 60, 70 yards and land it on a penny. Right into the path of a runner, right to their feet. Wherever they needed that ball, he would put it. And I remember when Busquets was in his prime and I remember hearing about Barcelona players marvelling about how when Busquets passed the ball to you, not only was he giving you the ball, he was letting you know what your next move was. So if he played it to your left foot, he was telling you to turn and go that side. 
if he played it to your right foot, he was telling you to turn and go that side. He was letting you know where the pressure was coming from. But these are things that Beckenbauer did in the 60s and 70s. These are things that Beckenbauer would do, not just from 15, 20 yards away, but from 30 and 40 yards away. That ability to just see the whole game, to understand what the opposition was going to do and anticipate it and preempt it. It's what made him a great defender is that he had that knowledge of or that ability to predict what the opponent was going to do, but it made him so vital in the attacking side as well. And if we look at what he did in his career, obviously, like I say, he joins Bayern in 59. Now, as I said, Bayern were not by any stretch the dominant force in German football. Prior to Franz Beckenbauer, Bayern won one league title. This is pre-Bundesliga. 1932, Bayern win their one and only league title. They won the cup in 1957, the German cup. And that's it. That is the entire honour list of Bayern Munich pre-Franz Beckenbauer. One league title, one German cup. Think about what they have now. Record Bundesligas, record German Cups, record German Super Cups, and the record League Cup, which is no longer a competition, but they're the record holders. Six European Cups, the UEFA Cup, a Cup Winners Cup, European Super Cups, World Club Cups. All of this is after Beckenbauer's development and his arrival into the first team. And him, and obviously others as well, like Gerd Muller, elevating Bayern Munich to a level that was not seen as in any way likely. They were just a regional club. They were Sunderland pre-Franz Beckenbauer. And now they're one of the three or four biggest clubs in the world. And so much of it is because of him. So he makes his debut as a left winger. Oh, I should point out, Bayern weren't even in the top flight when he came into the team. Bayern were in the second division. He makes his debut as a left winger. And in that first season, they get promoted into the Bundesliga. And in their first season back among the big boys, they win the German Cup. And then they won the German Cup again the next year. And then in 68-69, they win the Bundesliga. First time winning the Bundesliga. And remember at the time as well, German football is super competitive. You've got so many top, top clubs who are starting to emerge as, you know, potential European powerhouses. The likes of Borussia Mönchengladbach, the likes of Stuttgart, the likes of Hamburg, got a really good Schalke team back then as well, 1860, like I mentioned. German football is very, very competitive at this point. So they win their first league title in 1969, 68-69 season. The same year they won the cup. 
So having come into a team that was drifting in the second division, within five years, Beckenbauer has won a Bundesliga and three German Cups and elevated them to now preeminent status in German football. In 72, they win the Bundesliga again. They do it again in 73. They do it again in 74. Three in a row. The Bundesliga, remember, was only formed in 1963. So, Bayern didn't win any of the first five. Cologne, Werder Bremen, 1860, Braunschweig, and Nuremberg. Then Bayern, then back-to-back Borussia Mönchengladbach, and then Bayern win three in a row, and then Gladbach win three in a row. But by the time Bayern won that three in a row, in the first 10 years, they're the, the dominant team in this 10-year span. Gladbach took over, and then it was you know a battle. Bayern wouldn't have the same kind of dominance that they have now, but they would start to really force home their advantages because... Because of the likes of Beckenbauer, who was a global icon in the game, Bayern were able to grow their club from a commercial standpoint. But Bayern were one of the very first clubs to really tap into the commercial side, the possibilities of marketing your players, the possibilities of tours, something they took from Pele Santos to go and play high-profile friendly games for large sums of money and sell themselves to a new audience. But to win four of the first 10 Bundesliga titles, having only won one in one league title in your entire history prior to that, showed the changes that went on at Bayern. And he was the most important part of all of that. Because he was their best player, he was their leader, he was their captain, he was one of the decision makers. He was someone that already, as a young player, was showing, well, by the time we get to 74, he's not a young player anymore. But in the earlier days of his career, he showed real leadership and a real belief in where the club should go and what they should do and how they should present themselves. They win the European Cup in 1974 for the first time. And you look back at those European Cup years and there's there's such a uniqueness to them that we will just will never get again. Like you look at Bayern's run in that year and they beat at at Wiedeberg of Sweden. Then they beat Dinamo Dresden of East Germany. Then they play CSKA Sofia, Uspesti of Hungary, and then Atletico Madrid in the final and beat them 4-0 in a replay. And, you know, people now will snobbishly look back at that and say, oh, they're playing Uspesti in the semi-final. Yeah, but that was a really good team back then. That was a team that had won a very competitive Hungarian league. Back then, you're only playing champions. You're not playing a team that's finished fourth you're playing a team that's won their league. And remember back then as well, we had far less player movement, especially from the Eastern Bloc, where players generally were not allowed to move abroad. 
And if they did, it was the end of their international career because they could never go home or they'd be arrested. So they beat Atletico Madrid in that first European Cup. In the first game, game goes to extra time. And Luis Aragones, who obviously would become famous and then infamous as a manager, um, he opens the scoring for Atleti in 114 minutes. And Hans-Jörg Schwarzenbeck, who was Beckenbauer's centre-back partner, equalises with one of the last kicks of the ball. Bayern at that point are playing what is a, a very modern 4-3-3. So when we talk about, again, you know, the Guardiola influence on the game, but Bayern were doing that back then. When we see last season, John Stones stepping from centre-back into midfield and sitting in with Rodri and City playing a three-box three, and we hear about Pep revolutionising the game. Franz Beckenbauer was doing that at this point, stepping into midfield next to René Zobel and allowing Franz Roth and Kappelman, Jupp Kappelman, to step forward and join the attack. The idea that these are new things, this is, this is what makes Pep great. It's not his ability to innovate because he doesn't innovate anything. It's his ability to be a student of history and go back and look at things that took place 50 years ago and what might work in the modern game. And Beckenbauer was doing then what Stones did last season only to a much, much higher level. Go and watch that game. Beckenbauer plays about half of it, stood in midfield, running things. Um, In the replay, Byron wiped the floor with them, winning 4-0. They changed very little, but took the same approach and just completely dominated the game. I think in the first one, it was probably nerves. It's not a good Byron performance in that first game. They really did struggle to kind of imprint themselves on the game. And like the Atleti team, it's a strong team. There's some tremendous players in that team. But there's just no way that they should have been living with a Bayern team with Paul Breitner, Hans-Jörg Schwarzenbeck, Franz Beckenbauer, Seb Meyer in goal, one of the all-time greats. René Zorbel is a tremendous player. Gerd Muller and Oli Hunas. Like the, the Atleti team should not have been getting anywhere close to them. And in the second leg, they didn't. Hunter scored after 28, Muller scored after 56, Muller scored again on 69 and Hunter scored on 82. And they just wiped the floor with Atletico Madrid. Because winning it once just wasn't enough. They came back the following year and they beat Leeds United. And this is the great Leeds team of Don Revy. Now, Don Revy is gone. This is Jimmy Arfield in charge, but this is the Don Revy team with Norman Hunter and Frank Gray and Billy Bremner and John Giles and Peter Lorimer and Alan Clark and Joe Jordan. This is a team that Don Revy had crafted over a decade and hardened. And everybody's heard, you know, the, the, the funny lines from Brian Clough about how they could throw all the pots and pans into a rubbish bin because it won none of them. But they were, they were the 
Simeone team of that time, the team that dabbled in the dark arts. They were dirty. They were tough. They were cynical. But they were winners. And everything they did was aimed at winning and gaining an advantage. And if they could get in your head and you thought they're just here to kick us, they're here to try and bully us, that was them winning. But in this game against Bayern, none of their tricks worked. The physicality didn't work. It didn't phase the Germans. The cynicism didn't work. The Germans would just do it back to them. They couldn't talk to them. The Germans would just blank them. There's a clip of Billy Bremner. He's jawing constantly at Renner Zobel. Jawing at him, trying to spark any kind of reaction. And Zobel just has this completely calm demeanour. Just looking straight through him, not even acknowledging that he's there. Byron beat them 2-0. Franz Roth scores the opener. Gerd Muller scores the second goal. And Byron ease to victory. Leeds complained for years and years that they were robbed in that game that the referee was on the German side. There was a goal that was given and then not given. Billy Bremner shot from (laughs) inside the six-yard box. Seth Meyer saves it. Ball gets cleared, skirmish, ball back in. And Peter Lorimer puts the ball in the back of the net. But Bremner, who can't believe he's missed the early chance, is stood in an offside position. The referee gives the goal, and Beckenbauer goes and speaks to the referee. And at this point, he's Franz Beckenbauer. He's a global icon. He's maybe the best player on the planet. And he starts talking to the referee and he convinces him, go and speak to your linesman. He hasn't given the goal. Go and speak to your linesman. Now, the linesman hadn't given offside. The linesman had seen the referee signal for a goal and he'd run back to the halfway line. He hadn't raised his flag. And at this point, the Leeds fans lose their minds. They feel like they were denied a penalty in the first half. Now they've been denied a goal in the second half. And the players just get completely rattled. Whereas the Bayern players are just completely calm. And this is the difference between true greatness and a great team. Like the Leeds team was a great team, but that Bayern team, that's true greatness. Got some of the best players to ever play the game. And within 10 minutes of this, Byron are 1 0 up through Franz Roth. And then Garrett Muller scores 10 minutes later. And that's game over. And Leeds to this day claim to were robbed. But I just don't believe that they were. You go back. Watch the game. Yeah, Leeds had periods of dominance. That's going to happen when you put two really good teams up against each other. 
I, I don't believe for one second that Leeds were robbed. The following year, Byron complete the three in a row, which is such a rarity. They beat St. Etienne 1-0. Roth scores again, having scored the previous year. He scores the, the only goal of the game on 57 minutes. And Byron win three in a row. Having never won the European Cup, they've now won three in three years. Three Bundesligas in a row, four in five years, four in six years, four in six years, and then three European Cups in a row. But they'd also won the Cup Winners' Cup in 67 after the first German Cup victory. So if you look at it, they get promoted, then they win the German Cup. The next year, they win the German Cup and Cup Winners' Cup double. Then they win the League and Cup double. Then they win nothing for one year. And then they win the League, the League again, the League and European Cup double, the European Cup, and the European Cup again. That's a hell of a run for a team that had been in the lower leagues a decade before. Like we talk about Brian Clough and what he did. And what Brian Clough did is truly special because Nottingham Forest are not and we're never going to be what Bayern Munich could become. But this is right up there. Like it's not as impressive as going Division 2, win Division 1, European Cup, European Cup. But they sustained it for longer and they won more. Beckenbauer would depart Bayern in 1977. At that point, he's 32 and he decides he wants to go and cash in on his stardom. So he heads for New York Cosmos. Plays four years there. Moves back to Germany. Joins Hamburg. And wins another Bundesliga. Now, he doesn't play a huge amount. He suffers some injuries. He's older at this point. It's 1982, he's 37 years of age. He's got a bunch of different injuries and ailments. But he's part of a team that wins the German Cup. And you'll hear players that were there at that time talk about how his influence, just having him in the dressing room, the day he walked in, the aura he brought. There's only a few players where you'll hear other great players talk about the aura when they came into the room, how everybody just kind of goes silent because you're in the presence of genuine greatness. Cruyff is one, Beckenbauer is another, players like Maradona would be in that. You know, you hear great players of Maradona's era, they talk about things that they saw him do. They do it in almost a hushed tone. It is a reverence to it. It's the exact same with Beckenbauer. And when you hear players that played with him, that played against him, that met him after he'd retired, that played under him as a manager, or that met him in subsequent years when he was working behind the scenes at Dor- at, at Bayern, rather, you, you just, they have this, they're in awe of who he is and what he'd done, of what greatness he'd achieved. And after two years with Hamburg, he went back and played one last year with New York Cosmos. 
and then he retired. So in a club career, he won second division in Germany, four Bundesligas, four German Cups, three European Cups, a Cup Winners' Cup and an Intercontinental Cup. Then he won three North American League titles and then he won a Bundesliga. That's just a club career. With the national team, he also achieved genuine greatness. And Germany obviously had had success before they'd won the World Cup in 1954. But you look at his run with the German national team from 66 to 76. And it's it's truly incredible. So 1966, Germany get to the final of the World Cup and famously obviously lose to England 4-2 after extra time, the Jeff Hurst hat-trick. The Beckenberg plays central midfield in that game. And for large stretches, Germany were the better team. Now, England thoroughly deserved to win that World Cup. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But he went up against a strong English midfield of Nobby Styles, Alan Ball, Bobby Charlton and Martin Peters. And he was the best midfielder on the planet. Him against Bobby Charlton. Bobby Charlton was incredible. I talked about him when he passed away. Bobby Charlton was incredible. But in that final, Franz Beckenbauer gets the better of Bobby Charlton. But England win the World Cup. It's the greatest moment in English football history. In 1968, they don't qualify for the Euros. Only four teams qualify. The Germans don't get there. In 1970, they finish third in the World Cup. They get to the semi-final. They lose to the Italians 4-3 after extra time. The predominant story that came out afterwards was that the heat got to them, that they wilted in the heat. That World Cup obviously was played in Mexico. And that's a that's an incredible game of football. It's well worth your while finding that game to watch. Italy score after eight minutes. It's a back and forth game. Germany equalizing the last minute. The game goes to extra time. And we get five goals in extra time. Muller puts Germany one up. Well, two one up. Italy equalize. Then Italy go ahead. Then Muller equalizes. Now it's 3-3. Three, three. And then Rivera scores a minute later, Gianni Rivera, to uh, seal the victory for the Italians. And Italy would go on to lose in the final to Brazil, 4-1. Pelé was just ridiculous in that World Cup final. Whereas West Germany would beat Uruguay uh, 1-0 in the third and fourth place playoffs. That World Cup is one of the genuine great World Cups. There's just great games throughout. But if you look at the knockout games, Brazil versus Peru in the quarterfinals is an all-timer. England losing to West Germany in the quarterfinals after extra time, all-timer. That Italy-Germany game is one of the greatest games the World Cup ever saw. And the final, despite the fact it is a 4-1 win, it's a great game of football. Up until probably the third goal goes in and then the Italians kind of lost lost all hope. But it, it's a genuinely great game. Um 
1972 then, you've had the heartbreak of a World Cup final defeat, then losing in the semi-final. And you would think for a lot of teams that that might finish them off, but not never with the Germans. So they played the 1972 European Championships in Belgium. And again, like always with these um, these tournaments back then, there's only four teams. If you've got Belgium, you've got West Germany, you've got Hungary, and you've got the Soviet Union. And West Germany beat Belgium. Now, you've got to get through the qualifiers. You've got a, a whole tournament to get through before you get to the, the finals. That's the whole point of this. These were the European Championship finals, um, which I just think was a better system than what we have now. But obviously, money dictates. Anyway, we get to the semifinals and West Germany beat Belgium 2-1. Again, Gerrit Muller with two goals. And then they wipe the floor with the Soviet Union 3-0 in the final. And what that does is it springboards them. And they march into the 1974 World Cup, which they're hosting with renewed confidence, renewed vigour. Bayern have become the top team in Europe, winning the European Cup. They've won that European Championship. And nobody's going to touch them. They just are full of the belief that they are going to win no matter what. And funnily enough, in their group stage, they managed to lose a game to East Germany, which was a huge upset because East Germany didn't have a fraction of the talent that West Germany had. But that was probably the best thing that could have happened to them. Because what it did was it put them in the easier group in the second phase. East Germany won that first phase group with five points to West Germany's four. And in the second phase group, they went in with Brazil, Netherlands and Argentina. Whereas West Germany, because they lost, they end up with Poland, Sweden and Yugoslavia. And they win their three games there. They beat Yugoslavia 2-0. They beat Sweden 4-2. And they beat Poland 1-0. And that puts them then into the final. Because only the top team escaped from the group. The second place went into the third and fourth place playoff. So East Germany, in with Netherlands and Brazil, they finished third. So they're done. They're out. West Germany go into the easier group, walk their way through it, win the group, and then they get to the final where they face Johan Cruyff and the Netherlands, the only player at that point in the world who could make a legitimate case that he was better than Franz Beckenbauer was Johan Cruyff. Netherlands go one up after two minutes. West Germany equalise on 25 and then Gerd Muller scores just before half time. And Germany win the World Cup. And it is um, a great celebration. But it's the crowning moment for Beckenbauer. He's done everything at Bayern already. He's, he's still got more to do, but he's won a European Cup. He's won league titles. He's establishing Bayern as the preeminent force in German football. And now he's established Germany back as the preeminent force in world football with the European Championship and a World Cup in back-to-back Um competitions then in 76 they almost almost do the three in a row 
and they get to the final where they would lose to the Czech Republic in what was a big upset. They beat Yugoslavia, who were quite heavily fancied at the time, played the Czech Republic, drew 2-2, lost on penalties. Oli Hoynes missed. And because the Czechs had gone first when they scored their fifth, with Penenka scoring the winner, um, that German team by 76 had aged. It was still great players in it, but it had aged. It wasn't quite the same force as it had been two years previous. You still had Beck and Barry, you still had Schwartz and Beck, but you had Dieter Muller up front rather than Gerd Muller. He was a good player, not the same thing. You had only Highness, but he was towards the end of his career. Paul Breitner was either injured or had fallen out with people. Wasn't quite the same level. But I mean, everybody talks about the great achievements of, you know, when when France won the World Cup and then the Euros, and obviously when Germany won, or when, when Spain won a Euros, a World Cup and a Euros, the Germans came so close to doing that back in the 70s with this, with this team led by Beckenbauer, who also just happened to win three European Cups in a row. And it's not just the team honours, he has the individual honours to back it up. Now, we know that defenders don't win the Ballon d'Or. He won it twice. Rangers win it twice. He was runner-up twice. And he was third place once. So you've got five years where Franz Beckenbauer is rated as one of the three best players on the planet as a defender. Now, in 66, he was midfielder slash defender. 66, he's young. He's It's early Beckenbauer. The World Cup is the big factor there. But... You look at that run in the 70s, wins it in 72, runner-up 74, 75, and wins it again in 76. That's incredible. He's German Footballer of the Year in 66, 68, 74, and 76. He's named in the Bundesliga Team of the Year in 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, and 77. Every single year for 12 years, he's in the Bundesliga team of the year. Think of the consistency you need to do that for 12 years. Not only was he third place in the Ballon d'Or, I mentioned how it was early Beckenbauer. He was voted the best young player at the 66 World Cup. He was voted the third best player at that World Cup. He's in the World Cup All-Star teams in 66, 70 and 74. He's the second best player at the 74 World Cup or voted the second best player. He was named MVP of the North American League in 77. He was given the FIFA Order of Merit in 84. FIFA World Cup all-time team. He's picked twice in the Euro team of the tournament in 72 and 76. Like What a consistent run. He plays five major international tournaments between 66 and 76, and he's in the team of the tournament every single time. 
we are genuinely talking about one of the greatest players of all time here. A player who, if you're putting together an all-time 11, he's in. But he wasn't finished when he retired. We'll talk about it a bit more after the break. Right, welcome back. So we're talking about Franz Beckenbauer today. And we've talked about his playing career. So he retires in 1983. And in 1984, he's appointed manager of the German national team, which seems very early to just be thrown in. But not for Franz Beckenbauer. The German national team is a mess. They get to the Euros in 84 prior to him being appointed. They're dumped out in the group stage. So in comes Beckenbauer. And in his first tournament, which is the 86 World Cup, he leads them to the final. And if not for the single greatest individual performance through a tournament of any player in history, he would have won a World Cup at his first attempt. But Diego Maradona was just not to be stopped. And that final is a genuinely great game. And I highly recommend watching the 1986 World Cup final. Watch that World Cup in general. Go and find as much of that World Cup as you can and watch it. But that German team under Beckenbauer, they're outstanding. They're so well coached. They're so well drilled. They're in his image. And he predominantly as a player played in a back four, stepping into midfield. But with the national team, he played a back three and he gave freedom to his defenders to do the things that he would do. And he showed them what to do and told them what to do. And that final is genuinely great. Genuinely great. Argentina go two up, the Germans fight back, get the 2-2, and then Argentina win. Sorry if you, if you don't know the result, slight spoiler, but... Genuinely, go and watch that World Cup. It is fantastic. In 88, then, they head to the Euros. And again, it's an eight-team tournament. The Germans are hosts. There's a lot of pressure on them. And they get to the semifinals. They top their group ahead of Italy, ahead of Spain, ahead of Denmark. Really, really strong group. They get to the semifinals, they lose to the Dutch. And the Dutch obviously went on to win the Euros that year. That's Rijkaard, Van Basten, Hullen, Koeman. It's the greatest Dutch team maybe ever. You, you can make an argument for the 74 team, of course, because that was the Cruyff team built around the Ajax team. But this, this Dutch team was truly special as well. And you have that incredible Milan core. Um. So out they go. Disappointment. Disappointment to finish third. But that sets them up. And they go to 1990. Italian 90. For me, one of the greatest World Cups we've had. A lot of people disparage it. It's boring. There's not enough goals. It's incredible football. It's incredible football. And goals do not equate to good football i'm sorry they just don't but there's 2.21 goals per game scored in this world cup so if there's not enough goals for you that's a you problem not a this world cup problem and from pretty early it becomes obvious that we might be on a collision course now 
Argentina start the World Cup badly, losing to Cameroon. But everybody's talking about the potential rematch, Argentina versus Germany. Can we get that again? Once it becomes clear that Argentina aren't going to top their group, we see the breakdown of the table and the only time they can meet is the final. And it just seems like destiny. Because otherwise they would have met in the semi-final. If Argentina had topped the group, they would have met in the semi-final. Because of how the groups broke out, Argentina had to go the roundabout way and arguably the more difficult way, play Brazil, then Yugoslavia, a great Yugoslavia team, then Italy, the hosts in that famous game in Naples. And then they got to the final and waiting for them was going to be the Germans. The Germans beat the Netherlands in that mental game against all odds. The Netherlands were favourites going into that. They still had that Milan core. They'd won the Euros. They were full of confidence. Those Milan players were in incredible form. But Germany overcame. That's the game where Voller, Rudy Voller and Frank Reichert were sent off for spitting at each other. Then they played the Czechs. They beat them 1-0. Then they played England. They grinded their way past them, beat them on penalties and set up the final. And the final is not a... It's not a great game of football, but it's the most dramatic World Cup final, I think, that we've had. You go and you look at it and the descendings off, the physicality, the chances that are made and missed, the fact that we end up with an 85th minute penalty off a dive, really, and Andy Bremer steps up and scores. And Franz Beckenbauer becomes the first person to win the World Cup as player and manager. Um, one of only three to do so. You've got Zagallo, you've got Beckenbauer, and you've got Deschamps. And obviously, in recent year, recent days, sorry, recent days, we've lost Mario Zagallo and Franz Beckenbauer. Like, to lose both of them, two of the most historic figures in the history of the game, in the space of, what, 48 hours? Beckenbauer died on the 7th. I think Zagallo died on the 6th. 5th. So in two days, we lost two of the most important people in the history of the game. Zagallo would have done it before. Zagallo has to have done it beforehand. He has to have been the first. I have to be wrong about that. Yeah, he won it. Yeah, he was the first to do it. Won two World Cups, the player 58-62. I talked about this yesterday, so I should remember. And then in, in 70 as the manager. So Beckenbauer was the second person to do it. And obviously Deschamps has done it since 98 and, and uh, 2018. But we lose both of them in a couple of days. Um, Beckenbauer stepped down as manager of the German national team after that. And it's funny, he, he's talked about as an all-time great manager. 
in his entire career as a manager, he only managed 110 games. But he always won. 66 games with Germany, West Germany as it was, wins the World Cup. Manages Marseille in the 1990-91 season, but he leaves in December of that season. Manages 25 games and decides he doesn't want to be there anymore and leaves. But they went on and won the league title that year. So if you look at his his honours list, he won a league title that year as manager, even though he left mid-season. And then he would become sort of a firefighter for Bayern. When they needed somebody to just come in and, and take things over, they called him. So December 93, Bayern are a bit of a mess. They appoint Franz Beckenbauer. And he manages to, them to the end of the season. And he wins the Bundesliga. April of 96, again, Bayern are having a really poor, poor run. There's a handful of games left. Beckenbauer is appointed and he wins the UEFA Cup. <laughs> he just wins the UEFA Cup. So he's there six weeks. He wins the UEFA Cup. So 110 games as a manager, won a World Cup, was runner-up in another World Cup, third place in the European Championships, and then won two league titles in the UEFA Cup. His managerial record is overblown. 110 games. It's nothing, really. You know, like, we we think about Wayne Rooney, for example, recently sacked by Birmingham. You think about Wayne Rooney, you think about what a young manager he is, how, you know, he's, he's got so little experience. He's only been a manager since 2020. But Wayne Rooney has managed 153 games. Beckenbauer only managed 110. But he had success because Franz Beckenbauer had success because Franz Beckenbauer was not only one of the greatest players of all time, not only one of the greatest talents of all time, He's one of the greatest winners of all time as well. He didn't know how to do anything else other than win. And he did it everywhere he went. As a, as a player, he won with Bayern. He won with Cosmos. He won with Hamburg. As a manager, he won with Germany. He won with Marseille. He won with Bayern. This is what Franz Beckenbauer did. He won. And he inspired others to win. And he inspired his club and his nation to win. And as I said, pre-Franz Beckenbauer, Bayern Munich won one league title and one German Cup. Now they have 33 league titles. They have 20 German Cups. They had no European Cups. Now they have six. They had no European Cup winners' Cup. He won their only one. They had no UEFA Cups. And guess who was manager when they won their only UEFA Cup? Everything that that club has been built on started with him. And you'll go a long way before you find someone that has had that type of impact on any club.
everything they stand for, their principles as a club, the way they go about their business was shaped by him. As a player, briefly as manager, and then when he moved upstairs and he took on the role of president and he pushed them to grow and grow and grow and become dominant, become what we see them today. Like there's, there's such a big gap between them and everybody else. And that was his vision. Him and Uli Hannes and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge won his teammate, won a player that played under him for the national team. They looked to him for leadership, for advice, for counsel. Even after he stepped away, he was always seen as one of the most preeminent figures in Bayern. A phone call would be made to him to get his opinion on everything. A genuine great. And when we see some of the um, tributes that have been paid to him, both before his passing and after his passing. You, you just see the, the esteem in which he's held. You've got Kenny Dalglish saying that one of the greatest honours of his career was having Franz Beckenbauer present him with his 100th cap for Scotland. You've got Lothar Matthäus talking about him as the most important figure in German football. There's Lothar Matthäus. Nobody has a bigger opinion of themselves than Lothar Matthäus, and yet he is still deferential to Beckenbauer. Before Pele passed away, he lauded Beckenbauer, spoke about him as how Brazilian he was in the way he played. As a player, he marked you out of it by intelligence rather than strength. He was more Brazilian than German as a player. Matthias said, the shock is deep. Even though I know that Franz wasn't feeling well, his death is a loss for football and for Germany as a whole. He was one of the greatest as a player and a manager, but also off the field. Franz was an outstanding personality, not only in football, and he enjoyed worldwide recognition. Everybody who knows him knows what a great and generous person Franz was. A good friend left us. I will miss him. We will all miss him. The German FA said that he influenced German football like no other. Rudi Voller, I consider it one of the great privileges of my life to have known and experienced Franz Beckenbauer. Our time together with the national team was crowned with the 1990 World Cup in Rome, a title that would never have been possible without his outstanding coaching performance. See, this is why he's talked about as a great manager, despite the fact that he didn't have a a long managerial career, an extensive career. Tactically, he was so sharp. His issue was he got frustrated because the players weren't as good as him. Well, I could do that. Why can't you do it? Well, because to France, there's, there's been maybe three players ever that have been as good as you. Franz Beckenbauer is one of those rares, rarities where... You know, there's often players we look at, defenders that we look at, who are great footballers, but not necessarily great defenders. But he was both. He was both a great footballer and a great defender. But he was a great footballer. He, sorry, he was a great defender who was an even better footballer, which is just so rare. 
Julian Nagelsmann has said Beckham Bauer is the greatest footballer in German history. His interpretation of the role of the libero changed the game. This role in his friendship with the ball made him a free man. Franz Beckenbauer was able to float on the lawn. As a footballer and later as a coach, he was sublime. He stood above things. I mean, just incredible words. Absolutely incredible words. A truly, truly amazing player. A great manager, a great football person. And we'll be back after this break. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So uh, we're just going to run through the news and the gossip real quick here. Ben Brayton Diaz has sealed his loan move to Sheffield United. They'll be hoping that he can fire them to safety. He's had a dreadful loan, a dreadful spell at Villarreal. Just couldn't find form, couldn't find the back of the net, couldn't find a place in the team. But he is a really good player, and I'm hopeful that return to England will spark him back in, into form. Uh, Victor Boniface of Bayer Leverkusen will miss the AFCON through injury. He's expected to be out for six weeks with a muscle injury. Uh, Ian Matson has agreed to join Borussia Dortmund on loan from Chelsea. It doesn't look like there's an option to buy, but that might come up later. Um, if they get him and Sancho, that's going to be a really impressive January window to get both of them in. If they play them together on the left, uh, Matson as a left back or left wing back, and... Sancho was a left winger. That could be very, very scary. Uh, Manchester United beat Wigan 2-0 last night in the FA Cup. Um, Diogo Delo opened the scoring and Bruno Fernandes made it 2-0 after diving to win a penalty. Um, it's bad when you're diving to to, be, to beat a, a League One team. It really is. United are just not a good team. Um, Tottenham are closing in on a deal for... Genoa defender Radu Dragozan, who is a very, very good defender. I believe the fee is about to be about 21, 22 million plus Jed Spence on loan. Um, I think that's a good move for everybody, including Jed Spence. Trent Alexander-Arnold is set to be out for a few weeks with a knee injury. He hyperextended his knee during the game against Arsenal. So he has a little tear in his lateral ligament, ligament according to Pep and Linder's He's had a scan. He'll be out for a few weeks. We'll, we'll see after that. That's not good news for Liverpool. It's not good news for Trent either because he'd been playing absolutely outstanding football. Uh, Real Madrid will apparently target Alfonso Davies in the summer. Um, not a surprise. Not a surprise. They could do with a new left back. Fernand Mendy hasn't really worked out there. Fran Garcia doesn't look quite of the standard required. And Davies is out of contract in 2025, so Bayern won't want to risk him going to free agency. So it makes sense that they might move him on in the summer. But I'd imagine they will still want a significant amount of money. On to the gossip then. Real Madrid are keeping an eye on England and Everton centre-back Jared Branthwaite. Yeah, makes sense. I think he's... I genuinely think he's a massive talent. Everton and Belgian midfielder Amadou Onana is keen on the move to Arsenal. I think he's just keen to move away from Everton. But that move, that move makes no sense for anybody. It's a horrible fit for Arsenal. It would be vile in build-up. There's too much crossover with him and Rice. 
to work in an Arsenal team. It would work at like a West Ham under Moyes, but it wouldn't work at, um, and I don't think it would work anyway at, at Arsenal. Uh, Manchester United have also opened talks with Onana. I don't believe that because of who's reporting it. Don't believe any either of them because of who's reporting them, to be honest. Uh, United and Aston Villa are interested in Jonathan David. He'd be an interesting fit at Aston Villa next to Ollie Watkins. The problem here is that it's Steve Kay and he's a spoofer, so he's definitely made it up. Saudi Arabian club Al Etifak do not want to lose Jordan Henderson this month and are yet to receive a formal or informal offer. They're unlikely to receive many offers because he's not very good. Bayern Munich and Bayer Leverkusen have been offered the chance to sign Henderson and quickly turn it down. Uh, talks are continuing between Manchester City and Newcastle over Calvin Phillips. West Ham will explore a move for Steven Bergvine. As I said yesterday, it didn't work the last time he was in England. I'm not sure it would work all that well at West Ham. But it would be exciting to see him him and Kudus on the wing with Paqueta as the 10 behind Bone. to be a lot of pace in that attack. Uh, Wolves are interested in Hugo Ekatiki. I quite like that one. Uh, PSV and LA Galaxy are interested in signing Facundo Palestri. I think PSV is the better move for him because they've got a really good history at developing wide players. So I think that's the right move for him. Uh, Borussia Dortmund has agreed to deal signing Ian Matson. We've been over that. Brighton are set to trigger the 10 million euro release clause in Valentin Barco's contract from Boca Juniors. I don't think he's a left back. Not in the Premier League. They don't need him as a left back. They've got a Stupinen. I don't think he's the Stupinen replacement though. I think he's a playmaker. I think he's a, I think he's a 10 to be honest, but I think you could play him in central midfield. And I think you'd get a lot more out of him. He's a really, really talented player. Uh, Bayern Munich has joined Tottenham in the race for Radu Dragas. And I, I expect he ends up at Spurs. Um, Jed Spence is training with the Tottenham under 21s and looks set to go back out on loan. Yeah, I, I think he's going to go to Genoa on loan. AC Milan are interested in Hellas Verona's 23-year-old Belgian forward Cyril Ngonge, who has also been linked with Aston Villa. Um, I mean, he's a versatile player. He's having a really good season. It's his first season there, having joined from Groningen in the summer. He's a very talented player. Consistency is the issue for him. If he could find consistency in his game, which he has shown more of this year, I, I think he could be a good Premier League player. Uh, his dad is Michael Ngonj, who played for Watford, Huddersfield and QPR, as well as Kilmarnock uh, around the turn of the millennium. Um, and was a decent player, was a decent player back in the day. Uh, that's it, folks. That's all I have for today. So I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.